Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sociology. This is your hostess, Annie Sepukaya. Today we are talking to Carrie Isle Smith about her new book, The Sociology of Globalization, Cultures, Economies, and Politics. This book is a compilation of international essays which analyze the process of globalization and its consequences for people all over the globe. The authors presented include Anthony Giddens, Samir Amin, George Ritzer, Peter Singer, and Benjamin Barber, among others. Smith is the editor of the book and is also an assistant professor of sociology at Suffolk University in Boston. She has published many articles on hybridity, human rights, and also on the teaching of sociology. She is also the former vice president of Sociologists Without Borders. Good afternoon, Carrie. Good afternoon. We are talking to you today about your book, The Sociology of Globalization. Um, what, what this, this book is by many different authors, and you edited the book, is that correct? Yeah. Yes. And, um, and what, what made you do that at this point? Well, I've been teaching globalization to undergraduate students for um, probably over five years now, and in the course of that time, I was always looking for the right resources to use in my classroom, and I found that um, I couldn't find one single book that had everything that I wanted, and so I thought it would be a good idea to create one that included all of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you say at the very beginning that globalization and its processes are widely misunderstood. Why is that? I think what I see when I hear about globalization in the media and um, when it's talked about in population or in um, general conversations, I hear people talking a lot about economics. And I think that maybe our, we gravitate towards thinking about economics because that seems to be the most obvious part of globalization. It's something that we can see. We can see the ships full of big containers of stuff that's moving around. We see the stock markets responding to what's happening in Europe or Asia, this kind of thing. Um, But what's going on with cultures is not as obvious. It's not something that's as tangible. And also what's going on in politics is a little bit less tangible as well. So I think that's a part of why there's a lot of mistakes about it. And a lot of the conversations about globalization in the media, I I don't think they're very critical either, Mm. which I find to be really problematic. And so I think we need to ask more critical questions about what's going on rather than getting excited and exuberant about all these new objects that we can consume and and enjoy. Right. So you think the media kind of takes it for granted that, oh, this is this is awesome. The more free trade, the better kind of thing. Yes. Yes. And the more that we can sell to other people, the better. The more that we can buy from other people, the better. Mm -hmm. You talk about the difference between global capitalism and globalization. What is the difference between those two? Well, um, global capitalism focuses 
solely on the changes that we see in the economy as a result of globalization. And so some of these changes include the expansion of free trade um, and also the growth of a transnational capitalist class, um, whereas the concept of globalization looks more generally at, um, as Anthony Giddens says, the spread of the idea that we all live in one world. And um, as Roland Robertson, who is also in the book, talks about this uh, two-way process, which I think is really an important component of his definition, where um, localities are changing because of global uh, events, and global events are also impacted by what's happening locally. Mm-hmm. In one of the, uh, in the, I think it's the Giddens chapter, um, he talks about sociologist Daniel Bell, who said that the nation has become too small to solve big problems, but too large to solve small problems. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, oh, I just happened to flip to that page right here. <laughs> um, so when he's talking about the state being too big to solve small problems, this is something that we hear about in the media as reference to nanny states. And so New York in the U.S. right now, they've recently banned the sale of giant sodas, the super big-sized sodas, Um and this is one example of the state being quite large, trying to regulate our our small behaviors in our daily lives, such as our soda drinking or whether we wear seatbelts in our cars, things like this. Um, but the state is also too small to, um, for instance, we've just had the Hurricane Sandy episode in New York also, and many people are attributing this to climate change. The United States could take action to mitigate the effects of climate change, but also climate change is something that's a result of what's going on all around the world. And so in that way, the United States can only affect some change, but not fully um, impact global policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a limit to what what they can do. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that's especially problematic. The U.S. is a very powerful country, but if you are in a country that lacks power politically, then you are particularly in a problematic situation to, for instance, negotiate with firms that want to come in and um, um, start to do business in your country. And so then you have a harder time negotiating with them for um, fair taxation and fair wages for their potential employees as well. Yeah, and, and actually you said some of the authors um, in your book talk about um, globalization actually being a, a one-way process where it's it's actually Americanization and not globalization at all. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that? Um, well, I think that's a component of globalization, but I think it's a very narrow view of globalization, and it's, it certainly is not the same thing. And I do think that even when we see Americanization happening, that it surely is possible for that to become a two-way process. And so perhaps um, the uh, the protests that we saw at the Fox Con- Fox 
Foxconn, a manufacturing company, the folks who manufacture iPhones, that's pushing American consumers to being more aware of what it means for them to buy new phones every year um, and the impact that that has on other people's lives as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's interesting. Uh, there's a part in chapter four where you talk about um, actually it's it's the author talks about the uh, the ways that globalization impacts culture. And uh, he outlines three processes, hybridization, homogenization, and differentialism. Mm-hmm. Um, could you kind of define those for us and tell us what they're about? Yes. Um, so um, this is written by Jan Peters, this chapter. And uh, when he's talking about globalization as homogenization, this is the kind of um, the model where all over the world we become the same or alike in terms of our cultural practices. Mm-hmm. So we would all presumably speak the same language, um, cultivate and eat similar foods, wear similar clothes, and this kind of thing. other cultural aspects. Maybe we would celebrate the same holidays. And we would all globally become the same because of the process of globalization. Um, with cultural hybridization, this is more of the two-way process. So what happens with cultural hybridization is that actually because of globalization, we see lots of mixing of cultures. So uh, local cultures will take on other foreign cultures. Some of them might be global or some of them might be uh, distinct to other localities. And so in that way, we see this um, uh, sometimes it's called a cut-and-mix model, or it's sort of like a collage, and a new culture emerges that's completely distinct, that's um, bits and pieces of many different cultures. And um, the cultural differentiation thesis, this is one that says that because of our exposure to globalization, rather than becoming like something uniform or adopting other cultures, what happens is we want to stick to what is our culture distinctively. And so um, when I'm talking about this one in my classes, I talk about it's a little bit like the turtle talking into its shell and um, trying to stay very distinctively just the turtle and not be exposed to the environment around it, but rather to remain pure and um, distinct the same. Do you think there there are countries um, that have reacted more one way than another way to globalization? Like if you take something like a country like North Korea, for example, um, or, I mean, would that be an example of differentialism where they've kind of insulated themselves against uh, what they see as the American tide? Yes, definitely. And I think we also see that a lot of times when we see some uh, religious extremist groups trying to be very fundamentalist about their religious beliefs. So in that case, it's not based on a country, but based on a religious community that we see cultural differentiation emerging. Right. Um, Well, and actually in another chapter, now I can't recall which one it was, um, he talks about how they're on... the the more that people try to the more that globalization takes over people try to be more and more different but that also leads them to be more similar because they try to be different in similar ways yes um i think that's the chapter by benjamin barber and um 
Yeah, that can happen as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what Benjamin Barber also has a, a term that he calls Mac World. What is Mac World? Um, Mac World is the, um, this is a process of, um, uh, what, what do I want to say? This is a process where we standardize things. Um, and so if you think about going into a McDonald's restaurant, the process of making a cheeseburger or a Big Mac is standard and the same in every single restaurant. And this produces a um, predictable and familiar outcome. So if you go and eat a cheeseburger anywhere around the world, in some places you can't eat a cheeseburger because they only offer vegetarian um, products, but if they do offer the meat products, it will be the same thing whether you're going to one in an airport in New York or an airport in um, Beijing or wherever. And so that's that standardization. That's an important component of McWorld. And um, that gives us all this predictability and comfort. Hmm. And yet um, your book also talks about certain very standard things being adapted to local cultures as well, right? McDonald's being an example of that. In yes. certain places, things are different. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so there's the predictability component that is underscored by Barber, but it still can be um, made uh, distinctive in the local context, and this is where the hybridity comes in as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually, um, I'm living in Brazil right now, and they have McDonald's here, and but it's considered to be expensive food, like it's not cheap. Mm -hmm. Whereas North America, it's considered sort of you know cheap, junk foody kind of option. Um, but here, if you go out and you buy, and you have a you know a meal, rice and beans and meat and so forth, that's going to be cheaper than if you get a McDonald's. Um, sandwich, because McDonald's is considered to be a more refined food, which is, you know, kind of wild, but <laughs> it has on a different, <laughs> a different kind of meaning, I guess, depending on, on where you are. Yeah, yeah, and in that way, I think the sociology of globalization, it's, it's really important to keep thinking as sociologists that it's all about context. That's something that um, I often hear a lot of sociologists underscoring, and so in that way, um, we can look at how things become distinct in different places, even though they seem to be uniform. Mm -hmm. And so, what is um, what are some of the the negatives of globalization that you that you see that you think we should be more critical of? Well, I think the biggest negative of globalization probably comes from the economic processes, and that has impact on uh, culture and politics. And so we see the, um, the creation of lots of freedom to, for instance, trade objects and to uh, send money around the world very quickly. Money flies around the world at, at the flash of light now. Um, but for a person to travel around the world, one has to um, apply for visas and passports and have that. Um, that's often an expensive process. It has to be approved. And so we actually see people now trying to disguise themselves as objects in shipping containers with, with um, materials that are being shipped because it's much easier for objects to move freely than people to move freely. Even, mm -hmm. 
even though um, economically it would benefit the workers if they could move freely, but it does not benefit the business owners if people can move freely. And so in that way, um, that's one really strong negative consequence of globalization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what about, yeah, go ahead. Um, more generally, we can think about globalization as a fantastic way to spread goods in our society, such as human rights, freedoms, and political um, protection. But it's also a great way to spread ills or bads in our society as well. And so, um, uh, you know, sometimes this is things like disease and infection and illness, but sometimes it's other things as well that we can export. Um, So there's some interesting studies of um, the conceptualization of mental illness and how there's a something like an Americanization of that being spread globally, which is resulting in increased mental illness in populations which is, can be medicated um, by medications from these firms, the pharmaceutical firms that have patents on their products. Oh, I see. So it becomes a, a commercial thing as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, how does it affect um, wages, globalization? Because you hear a lot about this in the media and um, companies being shipped overseas and workers getting paid, you know, a third of what they would if they were in the States. And what are some of the problems with that? Um, the research is not really clear on this, whether globalization is improving inequality or uh, making it worse. Um if we look at this as a power relationship, it's not very good for workers, and it's very good for um, the capitalist class. And it's not good for workers because they have a hard time moving, they're stuck where they are, and they're also stuck where they are sometimes in vulnerable institutions, those weaker states that can't fight for them, it's hard. Whereas for the capitalists, they are free to move and can force countries to participate in what's sometimes called the race to the bottom, where literally countries are competing with each other to give the best conditions for the capitalists, but this is often the worst conditions for the workers, the lowest wages with the least environmental regulation and the lowest taxation. Do you think that um, Americans in general, or at least um, the sense that you get as a, sociology professor, that people are aware of, you know, where products come from and who who has made them? People are very not aware of this in my experience. So typically what I will do in the classroom is just have students help each other look at the labels on their shirts and jackets and uh, whatever, their backpacks, their books, to see where these objects are made. And, you know, they kind of assume that a lot of things are made in China these days, but as they look more closely to realize nothing is made in America, and some of the more obscure countries that are um, places with really low wages, low taxation, and low labor rights and that kind of thing, sometimes those won't surprise them. hmm Yeah. Um In Chapter 12, uh, Samir Amin argues that instead of looking for an end to the crisis of capitalism, that we should look for ways to end capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, why does he he argue that? Uh, Samir Amin works in Africa, 
And he has done work in Africa, both as an academic and also with some of these, um, uh, some of the NGOs that are working for um, building economic strength. And I think that what he's found is that the capitalist model is, it's, it, it has to take advantage of workers to be successful. And that is not a good model for Africa. Right. So what does he propose instead, or does he, or is it basically a critique of the way things are now? Um, it's a strong critique of the way things are now, and also a critique of how we are looking to change things, and he wants to look to um, what we call the developing world for solutions. He wants to look within uh, this other perspective and in order to find an alternative to globalization. And he does, or sorry, um, for global capitalism. Mm -hmm. And I think that he is sympathetic to something like socialism, um, but he recognizes that that has not been successful so far. Right, yeah. Um, do you think that there could be a, an alternative to, to capitalism? What's your take on that? Well, there have been alternatives to capitalism before. <laughs> well, so, um, obviously, uh, that, that was a different time with different technologies, but I don't think that our contemporary technologies demand that we only have capitalism as a means of economic exchange. Right. And, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, I think that in some ways our new technologies might make something like socialism a lot more successful because it will be harder to be the leader that hoards everything for yourself when everyone is talking about everything all around the world instantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it seems like a, a really difficult thing to imagine, especially in the United States, where it seems that um, any kind of redistribution of wealth talk uh, instantly becomes uh, this very, very frightening thing. Yes, and there is a really strong um, ideal that private property is a, is almost a human right, or at least right. a a um, political right that people possess in the U.S. And so I think that yeah, that that would be a tricky hurdle to get past. Yeah, yeah, it's not something people would accept very well. Yeah, um, in chapter six. Um, Robertson's chapter, he discusses what he calls the compression of the world. Uh, could you describe that for us? Okay. Um, I'm just going to flip to that one really quickly. Um, I, I kind of understood it to mean um, this kind of, you know, with globalization, the world has somehow gotten smaller and there's more exchange. Um. Yes, and this one I think kind of works a little bit like a science metaphor, so you can imagine them like when you boil water on your stove and as the molecules heat up they start to move around and bump into each other more. And that's kind of what's happening as a result of globalization by applying um, globalization to human society. This energy is generated that means that we're all bumping around against each other. And as a result of that, there are pressures that are coming because we're bumping around against each other and we're different culturally, we're different politically, and we have different economic experiences. 
Well, it's interesting because uh, in the Giddens chapters, he mentions that nowadays everybody is talking about globalization, but even in the late 80s, the term was very, very rarely used. Uh, what happened all of a sudden that this is all that we talk about? I mean, does globalization even really exist? Because there are people that say that it that it doesn't really. Yes, there are. There are people. Um, there's a very strong argument that what we refer to as globalization is only a return to the level of trade that we saw before the Great Depression, which was obviously a long time before at the 1980s. <laughs> um, and so um, there are other people who say that globalization has existed since people moved around the world which would obviously mean that it's been 500 years or more older. So, again, why would it emerge in the 1980s? Um, but what did emerge in the 1980s was neoliberalism and the strong neoliberalism policies that uh, led to the falling away of barriers to trade. And so that's where we see that the economic change produced this interest in this thing that we call globalization. And does this also have to do with the rise of all the new technology? Um, I think that the new technology is helping as well, that because we, we uh, through technology, are able to communicate and interact um, with each other more globally, then that has changed definitely, and that's very different than it was uh, in the pre-Depression era, um, or also um, with uh, migration and um um, colonialism that we saw happening before that. So definitely, I do think that the communications technology is an important component too. And in the 1980s, that was when we first saw uh, Crockett and Tubbs with their cell phones on Miami Vice that were these gigantic car battery things. Um, but now, obviously, our cell phones are much smaller, and we have many ways of communicating aside from telephones as well. Right, right. Uh, there's, I think it's chapter 18 where. I mean, argues that um, foreign aid is actually detrimental to countries. I thought that was interesting. Uh, he has a pretty harsh critique of, of foreign aid, or at least in the way that it's being used now. Yes, and um, I think his critique is particularly that the foreign aid is given with a lot of foreign influence on how it is meant to be used rather than being given with um, the trust that local knowledge, local communities will choose how to best use it and then use that to build their communities in their way. So it's kind of like a an indirect form of colonization in a way? It can be, and it can um, be in the interest of the people who are giving aid rather than in the interest of the people who are receiving aid. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is true for, because um, I think a lot of people are kind of confused by this foreign aid thing, because there is so much, uh, even with things that are, you know, within the United States, uh, with Hurricane Sandy, there's always this urge for people to uh, to give, to donate, and, uh, and, and then when you, but you don't know where that money goes. Um, and how, do you have any thoughts on that, like in terms of sociological awareness uh, or I mean, people, how do people choose, like, how to help? Because I think a lot of people want to help, but don't really know how. And this is something that Peter Singer talks about, too, in his chapter on one community. And um, he talks about how people 
um, while people have this instinct to give and they want to help help their neighbors, whether they're close or far, it seems that it's harder to trust when you give money to your neighbors who are far away um, because you don't know how they will use the money. You can't really go and check that it's used as you wish. <laughs> and so um, I think that this is a really interesting conundrum. But at the same time, I, I'm not sure if you heard recently, news has come out that in um, Haiti, the cholera outbreak that happened after the earthquake was actually, there, there's some strong arguments that the cholera outbreak was caused by the aid agencies that came in to help. Um, oh, no. So in this way, the foreign aid agencies that came in did not have as much knowledge and weren't able to act in a way that was safe and effective. And so what I wow. see... Um, um, my colleagues who are sociologists and who are doing this kind of work, um, they really urge that we we go to local grassroots-based organizations that have networks, that have contacts and long-standing relationships in the community, and that that's the best way to give meaningful aid. Um, and um, there is a lot of support of some of the big umbrella organizations as well that because of their uh, their in, the way that their institutions are set up, they have networks and connections to the local communities as well. Great. Uh, so your your book is um, mainly for for teachers of sociology, or would you say it's it's for anybody who's interested in in the topics of globalization? Because you even have a couple of um, you've got links to like different films and things that are um, related to to the different chapters. Yes. Yes. Um, each chapter. The book is actually designed for students and teachers and anyone who is interested in the topic. And so, um, for the students, each chapter has um, questions for understanding, which are meant to gauge how much the person actually comprehends the reading, and then questions for analysis, which pushes. Um, students or readers further to actually apply the concepts. And then for each section of the book, um, culture, economy, and politics, there are great websites and movies and other resources that I gave there too. And if people are interested in buying your book, where can they go? Is it up on Amazon? Is it out yet? It's on Amazon. It is out. It came out in August and it's published by Westview Press. So you can um, go to their website as well, westviewpress.com, but it's on Amazon too. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today, Carrie. Thank you for having me. It was great to talk to you. You have been listening to an interview with Carrie Isle-Smith, editor of the book Sociology of Globalization, Cultures, Economies, and Politics. This is your hostess, Annie Sabukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Sociology. See you next time.